This is The War on Cars. I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome to a special bonus episode of the podcast just for Patreon supporters. Do you know George Hahn? If you don't, you should, and not just because he's a great guy. It's because if you are online or consume any sort of media in the year of our Lord 2022, he is hard to miss. It's kind of hard to pin George down. He's a men's fashion icon. He's a design aficionado, a writer, a social media star, an actor, a TV personality, a New Yorker. The New York Times called him an urban raconteur. You can find George as a special correspondent on Extra, the entertainment news magazine show. He occasionally fills in for Scott Galloway on Pivot, the podcast co-hosted by Kara Swisher, who is herself a former guest on The War on Cars. So... What does someone known for high style, a sharp wit, and a moral compass to match, and of course one viral video after another, have to do with the fight for safe streets and better cities? Well, let's find out. George Hahn, welcome to The War on Cars. Doug Gordon, so nice to be here. I'm wearing jeans, sneakers, and a Uniqlo black long sleeve t-shirt. You have a very nice blue blazer, a blue tie, a very nice... Shirt, a pocket square, I believe. Uh, we're sitting, so I can't see what you have. I have below jeans the waist. on. You have jeans on. I'm wearing all like sort of very casual, unironed cotton. Definitely, um, no offense to Josh, our engineer, but he is definitely the best dressed man in the studio right now, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Josh and I are just like, you know, sweats like we just got out of bed, basically. N- yeah. None of what I'm wearing requires dry cleaning. Welcome. It's great to have you. So, George, I want to start with the thing that maybe our listeners might know about you if they if they don't know that much. And that's a, a video that you posted to Twitter that took off and, and went viral. The context for this is that it's September 8th, 2020. And basically, after months and months of, of a really tough time in New York, the national media and lots of people across the country were really almost having fun, delighting in how bad things seemed not to say it wasn't terrible in March, April, May, June of that year. We had some moments. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was bad. But by mm. September, we were kind of turning a page mm-hmm. and starting a new chapter. You posted this video to Twitter. The city streets are a war zone. Look, there's more people having dinner. Oh, my God. <laughs> and there's people having drinks and laughing and, like, what's happening? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I haven't uh, heard that in so long. Uh, the best, uh, you can't see this, folks, at home, but you know when George says stop watching Fox News, like your demeanor totally changes. You kind of yeah. look right at the camera yeah. and just with this angry look, stop watching Fox News. Let's talk about that video. What prompted you to go out? You're walking your dog. You're yeah. holding your phone. Listening to yourself. this as we listen to it, I'm, I'm, he- I'm hearing their tags, their dog tags jingling as yeah. I'm talking and walking, yeah. So what prompted you to, to post this? That was inspired, or I should say, that whole rant was triggered by something that Molly Jong Fast had said on their podcast. She was co-hosted by uh, uh, Rick Wilson at the time on The New Abnormal. And she might have said something on Twitter as well. And someone had sort of trolled her after posting a picture in her neighborhood of a very serene New York City street and said that it was fake news and that she was lying. And my rant that you just played was literally, Doug, like a one-take, like, 
70-some-second response to Molly. And then she spun it out, and because she's got a bajillion followers, it kind of, like, went crazy. I'm looking at this right now. 6.4 million views. Uh, How'd you feel when that took off? I watched literally almost in real time my Twitter following, like, sort of blow up, and it just, you, it's intimidating. And then it happens, and people start talking about it, and I'm thinking, like, is this going to be my Citizen Kane? Like, is this as good as it's ever going to (laughs) get? Like, in five years, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, or maybe not even five years in six months. You'll be doing dog food commercials. Right. right? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of scary at first. But I kind of thought, okay, this is a moment. You can either use this or screw it up. It really was at that point, I think. People love to shit on New York. Love to. Especially when we're down. And so to tie it back to your video, there there was this idea that I really loved in it of like, you're defending New York City's honor with this short comical video. I will till I'm dead. Talk about your love of the city. It started when I was a little kid. In fact, um, <laughs> I was on my way here to meet you. I was on the subway and I took some like a slow-mo video on the B train going over the Manhattan Bridge, looking toward the Brooklyn Bridge. And I soundtracked the reel to NYC from Annie, the Broadway musical, which Love was it. the very first show I ever saw. I saw the original Broadway tour, national Broadway tour in Cleveland. And that was in that I was like in third grade. And that was a time when I started to really think like this NYC place. And there was that song in it, NYC. And it, like I get a lump in my throat. And then my dad took me to New York when I was like a couple years later or maybe later that year. And I knew then I wanted to live here. He brought me with him on a business trip. And it was that place that I saw in movies and on TV shows. Um, The I Love New York campaign was still happening. I love that music, too. And I've done videos using it. And actually, that campaign sounds like it's something straight out of Annie. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. It's so 70s. And, like, they would have Broadway stars and, like... (laughs) um, But... uh, Yes, my love affair with New York started very early, even long before I ever got here. And when you did get here, talk about what you did for work. I mean, you were an actor, mm-hmm. and you, you were on that sort of like most New York of shows, Sex and the City. Right. So I feel like you have a resume that's tied deeply to the city as well. True. Yeah, I moved here to, to be an actor um, and did that thing. I was a waiter. I was a bartender. My first job was as a receptionist in a very high-end hair salon. I worked with my cousin, Catherine. She and I both. She moved here a year after I did. And uh, I'm glad you brought Catherine up because I was thinking, by the way, that in my intro, and I didn't want to do this because I didn't want to put you on the spot, that I was going to introduce you as the second most famous Han <laughs> in America. <laughs> if listeners don't know. It's totally true. Catherine Han from... Uh, WandaVision, WandaVision. most recently. Yes. Um, but she's, it was she, Agatha all along. Agatha right. all along. She's fantastic. She's amazing. And so we worked together. It was our first gigs here. And um, she was living with her then boyfriend, now husband, and father of her children. And um, making our way. And uh, she went to uh, grad school and did Williamstown. I, I was loath to leave the city. There's my love of the city. I did not want to leave. I didn't want to get a show and maybe do a tour. That did not interest me. Going to graduate school in another town or something did not interest me. I got very caught up in, very early on, a very New York City-centric lifestyle. I love being here. I was not willing to travel, whereas like a lot of young actors who will do a national tour or something, 
I wasn't willing to go there. Um, after I left that salon where I worked with Catherine, I went. I worked at Joe Allen. That was my first restaurant gig. And for those who don't know, Joe Allen established what is now Restaurant Row. It is it is like theater dining, and Joe Allen is kind of a clubhouse. Still is after decades. It's been around since the '60s. In fact, the man himself, the namesake, just died last year. Right. Um, <clears throat> and so many connections I made in the entertainment industry, whether it be agents, directors, other actors, producers, it came from there. I can trace so many things that happened to me professionally all the way back to that place uh, when I was behind the bar or uh, waiting tables on the floor. Um, so what were we talking about? <laughs> I mean, for me, you know, I, I look at your resume, and like I said, I think it's like so deeply connected yeah, to a started, certain type of New Yorker. Kind of started there. Like, sort of like yeah. Peggy Sawyer coming off the bus in 42nd Street and wanting to Almost make it like big, that. right? Almost like that. Yeah. Really. But, like, it took a long time for things to happen. Like, I was not, like, people say to me now, oh, congrats on your success. I'm like, mm, I would say congrats on my attention. I've gotten a lot of that. But still, it's taken me a few decades to be an overnight success or whatever this is. It's been slow going. But one's journey is one's journey. So exactly. It, yeah. Exactly. I've, it's been a very unconventional path, my path here. And I want to talk about 2016. So mm -hmm. you, you had to leave New York at that point. Uh, uh, yeah. And mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit about that and what that meant for you. And... And obviously you returned. You're sitting here talking to me. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about that kind of detour yeah. and why that was necessary. I had hit a wall professionally. I was working for Joan Rivers as her social media director, which is that's a whole different story. Talk about, an, you know, again, it's another piece of my New York journey. I kind of look at it and go like, how did all this happen? I mean, I just kind of like, it's insane. But I was hired... Um, to be when Joan was still alive, obviously, um, to do her social media. She's talented, but not so talented that she could have hired you after she died. So that's probably, <laughs> yes, yeah. Her skills didn't transcend <laughs> yeah, real, on that level. A real pioneer in comedy, but not in that way. Right. Yeah. But she liked doing her own Twitter, but she had like, she was a whole, she was an industry, really. So she had the comedy, but there was also the QVC stuff. Uh, she had a book coming out that year. She was on the number one show on E!, she had a lot, there were a lot of balls in the air. And so the company, her company needed help sort of like solidifying all that. So I did that. After she died, the job wasn't really what I was hired to do. I was hired to be funny. I was kind of hired to like be her um, on like Facebook and Instagram. Uh, not that like anything went out, it didn't get her blessing. But, um, and I was left with very little income. Like that was a really nice check. I probably should not have left, but it just it re was harder and harder and harder to do a job that I didn't really care about anymore. Like I didn't care about jewelry and apparel, which is really what the job had become. Right. And so I had n really no income coming in. My mother had become very ill, and I left to go to my hometown of Cleveland. And I thought, okay, let's try this out. And I wrote a thing on my blog. It was it went viral. Um, the question I asked the question: Is it time to leave New York? And I look back on it, Doug, honestly, and I think like I had become one of those curmudgeonly New Yorkers who was bitching about the New York that they moved to and it's no longer that New York anymore. Kind of it's not dissimilar 
to a sort of like a make America great again nostalgia for like a state of things that never really were, but in my head it was a fairy tale of how amazing it was. It's funny that you say that kind of curmudgeonly old person idea of what New York used to be when you moved to it. Oh, it was so much better when I was young. Yeah, I shut up. Right. You were young. That's what was different about it. I feel like the slogan for New York or really any big city should be don't get used to it. Cities change. Cities change. And the part of the agreement that you sign on to when you move to a city is that your neighborhood isn't going to be exactly the same. The people might be different. The restaurant on the corner could turn into a cell phone store. That's just sort of how it goes. And you you have to be okay with the city being a dynamic place of change. I mean, obviously, you don't want it to be the kind of place where it sort of is now where nobody can afford to live here. That's a separate problem. But cities change. Yeah. They change. What I learned, having been away, was really just what you had said, which is that your favorite restaurant or diner is going to close. Barney's is going to go out of business. The Village Voice is going to fold. A building that you love is going to be knocked down and replaced with one that you hate. Uh, the people that you loved here are going to either move away or die. And one of the reasons New York is New York is because it's always changing. It's like me, meaning it's never done. It's a work in progress yeah. constantly. I am a work in progress. I live in a city that is a constant work in progress. So let's talk about your move to Cleveland then. So you moved to Cleveland now, the benefit was you're closer to family. Mm-hmm. You could afford a much larger apartment oh my God, for a so cheaper amazing. price than what you were paying in New York for a closet, <laughs> basically. Uh, I remember following some of your blog posts from that time. Um, talk about your experience. By the way, I should put a disclaimer on this episode that we're not shitting on other places. No. Just, this is what we prefer, and I hope there are lessons here for what makes a city good and dynamic, 100%. not just New York. 100%. Yes. Cleveland has um, amazing charms. Uh, it's my hometown. I'll always love it. And rent is practically free. You know, I had this like 1,000 square foot gorgeous one bedroom with 13 foot ceilings, 8 foot windows, a view of Lake Erie in downtown Cleveland, laundry in the unit with two courtyards, one for the dogs, a gym, a roof deck, three fire pits, <laughs> you know, like a common work area, like a WeWork um, and it was 1400 a month. Transplant the whole old warehouse conversion thing that I lived in to, like, Brooklyn or Chelsea. Be 14000 a month. Easily. Yeah. It, ridiculous. And I had one of the less impressive units in the place. And I lived with my mother for a year while she convalesced from a long stay in the hospital because we weren't sure if she was going to, you know, make it through it. But she did. That was one of the reasons I went back to Cleveland. And then I got some work and managed to... I was able to get that apartment that I was just talking about in downtown Cleveland. I lived there for, I was in Cleveland for three years total. And this, the last two years I was in that apartment in downtown Cleveland. And downtown is, has been trying to sort of create this city kind of living experience. There used to be a downtown life. Um, it's a very suburban city. It's built for sprawl. I lived there in all the three years. I never owned a car. Which made you unusual very, even for downtown Cleveland. Very. Right. I took public transit. People kind of looked at me like, really? And I should say unusual in the like white person living downtown. There are lots of people in this country and in cities like Cleveland who are car free, not because it's a lifestyle choice, but because of economic circumstances or other circumstances. Doug, I did the math. It was cheaper. If I had taken an Uber or a Lyft every day, if I needed to go somewhere by car, it was cheaper yeah. than owning a car. 
um, they, it doesn't occur to Clevelanders that all of these parking craters, like I live in a neighborhood of downtown called the Warehouse District. Downtown Cleveland is 3.1 square miles. And over, like at the time, like over 50% of the land space with surf, was surface parking. It was not always thus. You know, for tax reasons, they were all, like all these buildings and warehouses were demolished in like the 70s or something mm-hmm. and in the 80s, I think. Um, but it's ugly. Like if you, when you fly over downtown Cleveland, you look down and you'd be like, what the hell happened there? Yeah. You know? Uh, it does not occur to Clevelanders that that's bad. When the guy who is from Cleveland and then came from New York and actually lived in a city had some ideas of what could make this city maybe better, because I literally had over two decades of experience with it, they were not interested. The attitude was sort of like, thanks for coming, but we do things a little differently around here. So you had a weird insider-outsider status. Very much so. Yeah. Very much so. Which is funny because I feel like when you move to New York, you're sort of an insider the minute, you know, there's the Colson Whitehead quote about, I think, the, the minute you notice something has changed is when you become a New Yorker, <laughs> yeah, right? Like, that, like I said, like that cell phone right. store is now a, a grocery store, bam, yeah. you're a New Yorker. And whether that happens two years into your time here or two weeks into your time here, that's right. when you're a New Yorker. So what prompts your return then to New York? You're sort of growing to satisfaction. Obviously, things were getting better with your mom, thankfully. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you're not necessarily, it's not like you suddenly had some massive windfall and thought, okay, now I can afford to live in New York, right? <laughs> no. um, so, but you decided to come back yeah. and you moved into, how big is your apartment now? 372 square feet. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And you had perfect timing because you moved back here in. Right in time for the pandemic. January 2020. Uh-huh. Right. So how does that change your perspective then on city living to miss the city, you move back, and then everything goes to hell? It felt like a slap. Yeah. It felt like I was being slapped, like I was being punished. But your love for the city remained, so like how did it... Right. Well, my attitude was, and if if anybody who followed me on social media would know, um, like what, what what I started doing was doing like morning walks live on Instagram in Central Park with my dogs, and the gist was like because we were all terrified... We're going to be okay. And I didn't present a persona online that was polished and clean and together. If I was having a bad day, you knew it. I broke down. Like I had like a lot of Jimmy Kimmel, like tearful moments. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I'm, I fully embrace them. That's part of my human experience. Um, I had, I remember one, talk about loving the city. I remember walking when Broadway was shut down. I walked past the Schubert Theater, that's where cor- a chorus line played. Yeah. And my dad took me to that on that trip when I was a little kid, when he brought me with him. And so that has a very sort of like emotional resonance for me. And I did a video right then and there, and I got very emotional in it, um, talking about how we're going to be okay. We are all going to be okay. So I became, I, I realized I was becoming also a cheerleader for this city, proudly, happily so. Um, a defender. So George, you mentioned defending New York City. And one of the things that we talk about on the podcast is this idea that as much as we are trying to explain the problems with cars, we are also trying to make a positive, affirmative defense of cities. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it's important to defend cities right now? It's important to defend cities all the time, especially right now. Most Americans live in the cities. 
You'd never know it from how our politics no. works. No. So when people talk, it's hilarious to me when people talk about real America and they paint this Norman Rockwell-like thing of rural. No, 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 no. Real America is you and I right now, right here. We're in the middle of it. I always say if you want to see real America, go to the McDonald's at the Atlantic Terminal Mall just down the street from us because <laughs> you will see every type of American you can yes. possibly imagine. Yes. All, and it all works. You know, New York's not perfect. We have our problems. Never but will be. Mostly works. Never yeah. will be perfect. That's part of its charm. People yeah. shit on the subway. I'm like, it's amazing that it works the way it does. Yes. Um, but also a great place. Like I, I, I think of the subway as sort of the civic miracle where we've all come together to agree we're all going to work, we're all going to do our thing, mm-hmm. and you're going to work at a bank, and you're going to work at a grocery store, and you're going to school, and I'm going to a park or to a Broadway show, but we're all going to just share this space together yes. for the 15 minutes or 50 minutes that we're together. And, and, it, and it mostly works. And sometimes it's the best show in town. Yes. Um. But yes, I it's a, it's it's a, it's always amusing to me when people paint that like real real America versus like the city America bullshit narrative, and then telling me that I'm this I live in this liberal snow globe and I'm going like or in a bubble. The New York City bubble is a bubble where, I mean, certainly it varies by neighborhood. But it's kind of the anti bubble. Well, but it's a bubble where, where you can go and be safe to say express your gender identity or sure. your sexuality or your creative pursuits, or your religion, or your economic opportunities. And those types of things are not necessarily available in many other parts of this country. And there's a reason why you know, young gay kids move to big cities, because this, they can't is, be themselves where they're from. It's the Emerald City. It's the Emerald City. Not just New York, but like the, uh, San Francisco, Boston, Chicago. Atlanta, you know, people move Miami. across the South. Yep. They move to Atlanta because they can express themselves differently LA. there. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. That's what I mean. It's not just New York. I mean, we're talking about it because we're here. But yeah. like big cities in general, I'm a huge fan of them. Yeah. A cities are where people them. come together and sort of agree to all get along. The cities are where yes. it's at. And I don't want to be a traitor to my roots because I loved where I grew up. I loved my upbringing. I grew up in Lakewood, Ohio, which is just west of Cleveland. But um, I love the city. I love what you get here. Yes, it's more expensive. Shit, we pay through the nose. You know, a cup of coffee is a fucking mortgage payment. But... Look at what we get. I, so I get Central Park as my backyard. Okay, I so <laughs> I want to then use this as a way to transition a little bit because I'm sure some listeners are like, okay, great, George loves New York, Doug <laughs> loves New York. We could talk about loving New York and loving cities. All day. For, yeah, all day. Um, but I want to talk about your interest in bikes, in buses, in progressive transportation. You are a sort of accidental advocate a geek you, about it. Yeah, but yeah. you're not your typical bike advocate. First of all, you're like I said earlier, you're much better dressed than than the average bike advocate. No bicycling, offense, bike advocate. Bicycling but, doesn't require special clothes. Right. And contrary often, to popular practice. And you often bike around town mm-hmm. in, you know, jacket, tie, nice nice pants. How I would I wore a suit and tie to my job. That's how I got to work right. often. How did you get interested in this stuff as as George Hahn actor, raconteur, how did you get interested in advocacy? When I started my blog, georgehan.com, initially in its blog form was I was writing about like techie things and that was, then I became, realized I was interested in style and also lifestyle stuff from the perspective of someone who lives in a city. And since we are in this expensive city where space is a premium, 
I became very interested in ways to trick out what I call effective living. Um, meaning the best use of the limited space that we've got. Like people often, it's hilarious to me that they think I've got this like fat wardrobe, but like I don't. Like I, as, as I said, I live in 372 square feet. It's a converted hotel room with a hotel room closet, which ain't big. So effective living to me means what's the best way to get around and keep my ass in the same place it's been since high school. That's a bicycle. <laughs> uh, the bicycle is amazing. What are you riding now? Brompton. Oh, yeah. yeah. Talk about effective use of space in a small apartment. Yeah. I've always looked at people on Bromptons and thought, like, they're up to something and it's really good and I want in on it. They're like, cool little bikes. I have one. Yeah. They, they People seem to, people with them seem to be in on this secret. Like, they have this key to, like, how to do be really smart about this. That's That was always my perception. I always felt like the people I worked with who bike to work before biking to work was as big as it is now, they usually had a Brompton because they were the ones who were like, well, I just put it under my desk at work. I don't have to worry about parking, which was always the first question anybody had if they were wanted to bike to work. Right. Yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah. I honestly, I wrote and a piece. And they're stylish. Beautiful. Yeah. I wrote a piece on my blog. I am in awe of Andrew Ritchie, who is the guy who founded and created Brompton Bicycles. His original design is not very distant from what the Brompton is now. It hasn't changed much. Over the decades, I think he the first one he made was in 1976. Uh, they're very beautiful. I think they should be part of the design collection at MoMA. That fold is amazing. It's elegant, um, and it works. So that fits into sort of like the long ass answer to your question. This totally fits into my interest in effective, efficient living. It's funny how you've uh, sort of taken that perspective of efficient living in your small apartment and extrapolated it out to the city itself, because I feel like there's often a disconnect where a lot of New Yorkers are used to living in small apartments and they would never in a million years get like a lazy boy and a sectional sofa and a king size bed and expect it to fit in an apartment that's a thousand square feet or less. Mm -hmm. And yet they buy an SUV and park it on the street and then get mad when there's no place to park it. I am a huge fan of constraints because constraints force you to be resourceful living here in New York, we spatially have constraints. I embrace them because they force me to be more resourceful. I look at my apartment every day. How can this be more efficient? How can I make this sexier with limited resources? And the Brompton brilliantly solves that problem. You have a great video that you did with Street Films with Clarence Eckerson Jr. Yeah. about the bus and <laughs> other, other constraints <laughs> on cars. Uh, let's take a listen. Bringing the car into the city is a loser's game. And people keep trying it over and over again in terms of congestion, the cost of parking, tickets, getting towed. Enjoy a horrible time. Have fun with that. Anything that, like, degreases the wheels, let's just say, for cars and makes it more difficult, makes it a bigger pain in the ass for them, I am all for that. I'm not the city driver's friend. I love this because you're pulling no punches. I feel like advocates a lot of times are like, look, I understand people need their cars. And you're like, no, fuck it. You don't need a car in the city. You're making the problem worse. You brought this upon yourself. I still stand by every word I just listened to there. And something happens to people when they're in a car. It happens to me, too. I've, I feel it wash over me when I get behind a wheel. It's a sense of entitlement. I turn into a dick like everybody else. And someone has to explain to me, because it's never been explained to me, because it cannot be explained, 
why a driver's destination is more important or pressing than a pedestrian or bicyclist's destination. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, I mean, you see this all the time where it's assumed that a cyclist is going nowhere important, but a driver going to the movies or the gym is like the most important person who ever existed. Yeah. That something washes over you when you get behind the wheel of a car because the car becomes an extension, like a prosthesis, like an Iron Man suit. And they feel like this, I don't know, entitlement or invincibility, like they matter more. I don't know. But in the end, Tony Stark's he sacrificed himself for the greater good. So, you know, yeah, there's a lesson to be learned there, drivers. Snap your fingers and fry yourself. <laughs> there's right now in American culture, we were talking about defending cities and how cities sort of seem to be under assault. Yes. By the right, by the kind of suburban mindset, by the lots right. of people yeah. right now, not just the right. Um, but a lot of that has to do now also with perceived notions of conventional masculinity. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to play a clip from a sadly uh, short-lived show with Scott Galloway on CNN Plus. Oh, yeah. Uh, you were a guest. Yeah. I, I want to play this clip. So uh, masculinity, yeah. uh, that's kind of the topic uh, for today. Mm-hmm. What are your, any kind of top-line thoughts on what it means to be masculine or a modern-day man? Let's grab a seat. Right, we'll talk masculinity. You and I are of the same generation, basically, yeah. and societally with the men in our lives, our fathers, uncles, brothers if you had them, magazines, movies, TV shows, how to be a man as well sort of like laid out for you. You like a lot, you go for a lot of women, you like cars, preferably gigantic ones that get a mile a gallon these days. You want the big house, you want the boat, you eat a lot of meat, you're into sports, you drink a lot. I personally tick very few of those boxes. It's not that I've ever sat and questioned, oh, am I really a man? I know I'm a man. What has interested me is sort of disrupting the definition of what we're traditionally taught. So it's funny to me and interesting that you put giant cars Mm -hmm. into that. And obviously that's uh, red meat, no pun intended here, Mm -hmm. for the war on cars. So Mm -hmm. talk about that. Why do we, what what are your thoughts on why giant cars are so closely associated with traditional or conventional notions of masculinity? My mother raised five of us through Cleveland winters with a station wagon. Why the fuck somebody some why people suddenly need a basement on four wheels is astounding to me. Why you need a vehicle where the hood is taller than my mother. What is this need for these things? Why is everything are we supersizing absolutely everything? What is this shit? This obsession with giant big things. I like SUVs nauseate me. My theory about giant trucks and how we express ourselves through them. Mm-hmm. And you're you're a fashion expert, a style icon. Uh, I mean, compared to me, like like I said, um, is that cars have so atomized society mm-hmm. that the things that we can do when we live in close proximity to each other to express ourselves, mm-hmm. how we dress, mm-hmm. uh, what we consume in terms of art and culture. Uh, are really hard to express when you're whizzing by somebody else at 60 miles an hour. And your first impression of them, if you pull up to a valet at a restaurant or a parking lot at the mall, is not what you're wearing, but what you're driving. I express myself and who I am and what I want to project onto the world with what I wear. That's why I like a bicycle, because more people can see what I'm wearing. But 
the car or the SUV is an extension of what people like what the driver wants the world to think like I'm the big shot here I'm the big guy it's very strange though uh, in terms of design you look at like an Escalade a Cadillac Escalade which have just become like the grill when you look at the face of that car the, and it's the face it's not a, it's not a friendly face it's like a villain in a like a transformer movie and that is a deliberate design they're designed to look angry intimidating i will fuck you up like that kind of a face and guys eat that shit up how do we disrupt that definition keep making fun of them keep making fun that's of my them. tactic i just laugh at these fuckers like really this is what you got it's just about actually being as ridiculous as possible. Yeah. It's about like, and I think some of them might even be in on the fact that it is ridiculous and they do it because it's ridiculous. I think so. Yeah. Uh, but I think it should be a prohibitive pain in the ass to bring a car into the city. Like if someone's in Jersey or connect, wherever in the tri-state area and they're coming into the city to see a show, to go to the garden, um, you know, whatever, a car should be the least attractive option. Never, ever, to my knowledge, I'm not an expert, but never has more cars been the solution to any city's problems. Ever. Well, George, that is a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much for coming on The War on Cars. Thank you. I feel like I was all over the place, but this was, I love talking about The magic stuff. of editing. I'm going to make us both seem entirely coherent <laughs> People will walk away from this thinking, like, wow, those guys were really smart. Never will they know. God, George is brilliant. Fooled them again. George, where can people find you other than everywhere? Where's the best place to go? Other than everywhere, no. Um, I am at my website, georgehan.com. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter at georgehan. And I'm also on TikTok at georgehanNYC. I feel like I'm too old for TikTok, and yet you're on TikTok. And we're not that far apart in age. It's the platform where I have the most numbers, go figure. That's incredible. It is incredible. It's, it astounds me. All right. Well, I will put links in the show notes to the many places... Oh, I'm on Patreon, too. Oh, okay. Yeah, Patreon right. patreon.com slash George Hahn. Well, if you're supporting this podcast and you want to support another creator, go support George Hahn. Boom! Speaking of Patreon, a special thanks to all of you for supporting the podcast. Let us know what you're up to. Email us with questions or comments at thewaroncars at gmail.com. I'm Doug Gordon, and on behalf of my co-hosts, Aaron Naperstek and Sarah Goodyear, this is the War on Cars. <laughs>